0: Banning the Nerdosphere, talking about everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic
1: universe to fan films, and everything in between. It's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Battaglia. We've reached episode 158 of the Down and Nerdy podcast. and You know, Nick, this is usually the time in the beginning of the show. We like to have little jokes, have a little fun, but... Actually, this week, they've been talking about something pretty serious to start things out.
2: Yeah, of course. X-Men Gold has been one of those new books and Marvel's been lauding and stuff like that. You know, because after Death of X, it's after Inhumans versus X-Men. You know, same thing with X-Men Blue. So it's kind of like, you know, they partnered these two books together and it said, hey, we're going to kind of bring the X-Men back. Or this whole series was supposed to bring the X-Men back to really what made them great. You know, and kind of struggles that they had going on earlier on in their introduction back in the 60s but a lot of that really turned sour when it was discovered by people and and throughout various social media groups and stuff like that that the artist uh, Arden Saif actually hid apparently without Marvel editors knowledge he hid discriminatory images in his art and anti-christian anti-jewish it's really caused a huge stir and he has been as of this week is actually as of um, Monday it was an, or Tuesday it was announced that Marvel has ended his contract them, they have terminated his contract but here's the thing this is where I, I, I really want to get your take on this because they said well he originally was the lead artist on this project and he has his second issue which is already in, in printing so we can't redo the book and apparently the same thing going to be done with the third thing. So really, nobody's going to be changing the art and nobody's going to have a new artist take over until issue four. So my question to you is, we don't really know when and how many books he was supposed to be on because, again, this was a series where we don't know how many issues it's going to be and also it was it's a series where it has many rotating artists. Now... Even though his contract's been terminated, but yet it seems like his work is still looks to be being published.
1: What is your, your take on all of this? I think that the series is tainted at this point. I mean, there's no question about it. You can't do that with the X-Men. I'm not saying you can do that in general, but with the X-Men and the way it was done and the way it was presented, and I'll tell you this, if I'm the editors, I am fine-tooth combing every issue that he is still drawn of this book because if you let something else slide this is nuclear. I mean this this is really really bad. If anything else comes out at this point, how they missed it is a little beyond me. I know it's kind of obscure. I get that. But don't you see something on a t-shirt and don't you kind of go, "Huh, I wonder what that means?" because people on Twitter certainly did. And I did and and
2: for those of you who have read it and it was taken down, I did a review, actually, of this book where I did talk about how, you know, what did make this book really well for me was the fact that, hey, it looks like they were bringing back in terms of Mark Guggenheim's writing, they are bringing back the X-Men to that time of, of the challenges that they faced and trying, you know, really uh, make people see mutants in a different light, you know, stuff that made me as a young kid get into comics and, and get into X-Men and become a Marvel fan when I was younger because a lot of the problems that they were going through in their earlier runs, like in the 90s and stuff... Uh, I kind of was going through myself as as a child who has you know was seen differently by people and just by how I looked and was treated differently and so on and so forth. And so when I saw that the, you know, on Sunday I actually saw you know, it's what everything had happened with this and I went back and I'm like, wow, okay and I looked at some stuff, I did some research on this stuff and, and what it means and and it's really one of those situations where it's just like I, it's bad on all parts. I mean, it's really bad on Cyrus' part because he, again, apparently put this in without um, the Marvel editors knowing, which to me was kind of like, wait a I minute, mean, if, if they knew what it was, wouldn't the editors, don't editors like, and people probably can correct me on this, but if you're an editor and somebody sends you the finished stuff and you look it over and you're like, okay, it looks good, send the print, that's really the end product, right? Like you don't send yeah.
1: it. So, like, how could. He put that in there without them knowing, was my big They knew. And and I know that some people are coming out and saying, well, you know, there's a whole, it could be lost in translation thing. You know, there are some translations where it means this. If there's any translation that's bad of these numbers... You don't do it. I don't care well, if it's, you know, what the true reading is and stuff like that. True readings are, first of all, usually in the eye of the person that, that, that's reading it or whoever's well, worshiping it. If it's even close, if there's even the appearance that this could be bad, yeah. you don't do it. And what makes it
2: even worse is you have the leader of this book is Kitty Pride, who is of Jewish descent. You so also, are the creators, by the way. Yeah, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. So this is just all around bad. There's some other imagery we're not going to get into that was just bad as well as take it how you will and how it was drawn. Uh, it was pretty bad. And I just look at this thing with Marvel, like what they can do with this. And again, I think this whole thing taints the whole X-Men Gold thing. I even t- think it taints a lot of Marvel books because people are going to look at this of like, well, if this you know is, is happening here, if the editors aren't paying attention in this series, what's to say they're paying attention in a different series? Yeah. And stuff like that. And so, you know, here's the thing is I look at this whole thing and how it's happening and, and how it's all turning out to happen, and of course, you know, you're saying, well, we're going to bring this person in to do issue four, and stuff like that, well, I got, somebody tweeted me earlier this week was, well, apparently his work's still going to get published, uh, it's just that the covers that he was supposed to do are going to be or be, be different, and today I'm just like, I understand that it takes a while to put a book together, especially in terms of art, but if you're Marvel, and again, you brought this up, you had to go through a fine-tuned comb again. If God forbid something else gets through the second time around in this ish, second issue or third issue. When do you, as a reader, say, guys, you've you know, especially with a company like Marvel who's delayed a lot of major stuff like Secret Wars, something yep. like I we talk about it all the time. What's to say, hey, we have to delay we have to delay this by a month through release. You know, I understand issue two is coming out, I believe, uh, next week, and so you know, here's the thing: when you see this, you're like you could not just going to put some sort of delay on this? You, really? You, you, you couldn't? So, and the thing is kind of like, it feels like, you know, his contract's been terminated. If he's already done the work and it's going to get published, you would say he's probably already gotten paid and stuff oh, like that. Oh, absolutely. So really, it's kind of, an, if you think about it,
1: it's kind of shitty to say this or think this, but it's really an empty firing. Here's the deal. You and I, we sat down and talked about this on Sunday. We pulled your review from yeah. the website. Um, we've kind of come to a decision here, and this isn't based on this alone. This has been based on a series of follies and screw-ups and just behavior in general from Marvel that we kind of think as fans and as people who cover these things, unacceptable. This is unacceptable on so many levels. So for that reason, Nick and I have decided that until, and this is our big announcement that we're going to make. Nick and I have decided that the best way to voice our disapproval of this, and this is just us. If you guys want to join us as well, um, th- that's that's your decision. But this is what we're doing. We have decided we are no longer going to cover Marvel Comics, anything from a publishing arm on our show, our website, social media, nothing until they get their house in order, until they've shown that they can correct all of what has been a series of mistakes over the last several months and over the last at least year that the best thing that we you know there's no such thing as bad press you know what's worse no press and, and that's what we're doing and that's what i want to get to here because people are probably listening to saying
2: oh how can you guys do this as somebody who, who again does this show every week with james and runs the website and social media and stuff like that with james I don't want to have to spend every week spending 10 to 15 minutes bashing Marvel comics. I really don't. Because at the end of the day, I really want them to succeed. I want them to be well. I want them to have good stories. But as James, as you mentioned, you know, after the the, the talking last week, we talked about their comments about people not wanting diversity, that's why our sales. Not being able to own up to their own follies and their own downfalls has really made us look at people who, really, we, we own a business. We own, we own a company. So to make us look at this and say you know what, it's not in the best interest of us to, to continue to do this stuff. And, we, you know, we don't want to have to go on a show every week and bash Marvel, but and this is going to be the last time in terms of comics we're going to be doing it. Yeah,
1: and we need to criticize them when it needs to be criticized. And the same goes for anybody else. If this was anybody else and this sort right. of behavior was going on, we'd do the exact same thing. So so here's the deal, man. We're, just, we're still going to cover the TV and the video games. And the and the movies and stuff like that. We'll be reviewing the Thor Ragnarok trailer coming up yep. a little bit later on because we feel this is on the publishing yeah. department. This is this should not affect everybody else who has nothing to do with what's been going on in the publishing arm of Marvel. So that's what we've decided to do. And believe me when I say this, this was really
2: a tough decision to do. We we kind of talked it over a little bit on Sunday and we just really thought the positives and negatives of doing this. But this is our decision. So hopefully going forward, hopefully Marvel has this kind of DC rebirth rebirth. Sooner rather than later, and we can continue to talk about them in the positive light again. but That's going to do it for our intro. But coming up next, we have what we're reading of we two new comics coming up this week, including The End of Palimpsest.
3: This is Jonathan Delmore, tabletop games designer for IDW's Atari Line of Games, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
2: Well, it's that time when we pull our long boxes and we discuss what we're reading this week. And James, I'll have you go first. and. You did a new comic from Dark
1: Horse. Yeah, well, I mean, it's kind of the second volume, I guess you could call it, of the Shaolin Cowboy. Who'll Stop the Rain is the actual subtitle of this book. Of course, it's the first issue written and drawn by Jeff Darrow. And a little bit of help on the colors from Dave Stewart. Now, I'm going to say this. I, I always tend to get the weird books lately. Yeah. And uh, I know the Dark Horse can be, you know, they can have little, some funky stuff. I mean, Shadows on the Grave was very funky and very cool. This one... Very, very different. I'm not sure exactly how else to describe it. I mean, the first page starts with a pile of bodies. I mean, come on. Uh, And that's not really a spoiler. But this is kind of a... I would call this a... You don't have to read the first volume of this to kind of pick up on where it is. Because it's not like, you know, reading the first couple issues of a Batman story and all of a sudden Bane shows up or Joker shows up. And you're like, whoa, this is one of those things. Because unless you're a diehard Shaolin cowboy fan you're not gonna it's not really gonna be a big like whoa I don't know who that is or oh that's who's there because there is a I guess established villain from this book and I I will admittedly say that I'm not I'm not familiar with the previous volume but there is a villain from the previous book that does show up that kind of matters and it all sort of builds to that point but the one thing that is very interesting about this book is that it's a comedy book basically straight up comedy book and it's a it basically mocks everything like talking about people on their smartphones and the iPhone is called the iiPhone mm-hmm and talking about how nobody should pay for porn because it's free on the internet and who still pays for porn anymore because they were using a shipping drone to track this dude. I mean, dude. that is pretty
2: true though. Yeah, so I mean, <laughs>
1: it drops some interesting truth bombs. It's a, it's a very much a mockery of everything. Uh, still better Chi than Iron Fist on Netflix, I will say that much right now. <laughs> is better,
2: that, was that really a hard thing though? Is that really
1: a, a, a high hurdle one has to leap? No, but better explanation of Chi, that's for sure. I mean, the, the one Thing about this book, in that, but while it was entertaining, it was like at the same time you're reading this, you're going, "Okay, I have to care about this at some point, right? I can't. Right. This just can't be a laugh track. I have to actually care about the story and understand what's going on and 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 how he's doing this. And I guess maybe in the sense of not reading the first volume, maybe that's where I got lost on that. It's like, okay, so you can't really get invested in the character either because they don't give you much. Other than, they do give you little flashbacks, and one thing I liked about the art here was that any flashbacks were in black and white. So anything that was considered a flashback, where they needed to take you back to before when he's learning from his master and stuff like that, they put that in black and white, and they make it relatable to what's going on now. So I thought that that was was very cool, but it's just a matter of, okay... Why do they, why do they want him? Why is it so important? Why is he so important? What is it that he's doing other than there is one scene, not quite halfway through the book where he had the Shaolin cowboy has an encounter and it's like, well, okay, maybe this is the point of the book and I don't really want to spoil it. There was a kind of comedic instance in in that too. So it was pretty interesting. And the conclusion of it, it's like, really, that's all it took. But I think that that was the point. It was supposed to be funny. So that's why that's all it took to, to to end this confrontation. But basically you see who the villain is, you get a laugh out of that, you, you see how ridiculous everything is. It's basically, you see how, how kind of ridiculous advances in technology can be if you really put it down to a certain explanation. Mm-hmm. Or you put it in a certain context, it's like... Yeah, that is kind of ridiculous. Or oh, so yeah, you're upgrading this now because you have to. Or or everybody has this and everybody has that, and you're using this and nobody uses intuition anymore, kind of thing. So it's almost like a commentary on society. It's, in a a, way. it's com- it sounds like it's a commentary on the impulses of
2: society where you got you have to have the best thing, the biggest thing, the newest thing, you know. And it's like really you don't need that.
1: And and before we move on, uh, who wrote and did the art for this book? It was actually Jeff Darrow who wrote and did the art, and then Dave Stewart helped out with the colors. Now, colors were definitely great. Art is really really good. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's very, you know how if you if you have a group of people that are trashy, just like this whole group is it's it's a tra- the settings trashy. Mm-hmm. You could tell. I mean, there's cigarette butts everywhere, kind of thing. So to bring out how dirty and nasty this place they're at really is in the art. Freaking phenomenal because you're reading this book and you're going, you're, you're going, ah, and you're like, as you're scrolling through the pages, you're going, I can almost feel it. You can feel the On grime. On the page, you know, like if this was a scratch and sniff, you know, you, you'd be getting secondhand contact smoke <laughs> here. I mean, it'd be really ridiculous. So, I mean, bravo for the way that the art was put together. The story, yeah, there were funny parts, didn't grab me though, and, and it's funny because in in the uh, description of this book, if you go to Dark Horse's website, is uh, they they talk about how they've won and lost multiple mm-hmm. Eisners for this book. Mm-hmm. So it's it, that's very interesting. I think that there's there's something here though, and it makes me it does make me want to find out. Okay, what are the connecting pieces that I'm missing to make me like this more? Since I will admit I missed the first volume of it, so maybe that's on me. So that's why right now I got to put this at a pickup, only because some of the jokes landed, some of the jokes didn't. I thought that a couple things that they did, especially with one of the characters, dragged on a lot longer than it probably should have, that they could have sped it up a little bit more. And this book did have a few extra pages in it, so I could have seen maybe less of that and give me a little bit more of of a recap of why this person is chasing after the Shaolin cowboy, why... They want them. Give me a little more of that instead of what they gave us from this one character that you hear that you get a lot of dialogue from. I'll just say that because, again, I don't want to spoil it. It's part of the story. So um, I would have taken less of that. So that's why I'll give this book a pickup for now. We'll see where it goes. And my book this week, you know, I went back to
2: the world of Titan. In some way, we had in the show a while back, we had, of course, writer Peter Milligan, who is currently writing the Mummy Palimpsest, of course, for Titan Comics. And this week marks the end. Of Palim Sess, so of course I did Issue 5 of The Mummy Palim Sess, of course written by Peter Milligan, Arts done by Ronaldson Freer, Colors done by Ming Sen, Letters done by Simon Boland, and pretty much where this picks up is, you know, you have those, those great movies, if you will, those great books where you have somebody who is really deemed an innocent person throughout an entire series or entire film or show... But then they have that one thing where in order to save their lives, where they come up with some sort of startling discovery, and in order to save their lives, they must make a deal with the thing that they've been sort of running from, the entire book, series, movie, what have you, in order to survive against the greater evil out there, if mm-hmm. you will. And so this files, of course, Angel. And where issue four left off was she was praying to the priestess Nebita is saying, I want you to possess me. You know, I've never been trying to block you out and trying to, you know, get away from palimpsest, but I need you to be able to uh, possess me in order to survive here. And the reason why she does this is because back in issue four, it's fine. It's figured out that she figures out that she will not survive this 2000 year old process that she's going to die, which
1: they tried to tell her earlier right. on too.
2: Right. And so really this is the, this is the issue where Angel really takes control of, of her life and situation because remember, in the back in the first issue, you know, she was you know, trafficked for sex worker and stuff like that. So, this whole time, she's kind of trying to like who can she trust and what's going on here with everything with the Pyramid Club and and their whole uh conflict with the sect of Anubis and what's going on here. So, there are certain actions that she does, or I should say, her and to do as one entity that really will grab your attention, especially with the art that's done by Freer and the colors especially they are done by Ming Sen because remember when Peter Peter Milligan he was talking about how he was at the museum he was seeing you know the, these mummies and stuff like that and kind oh, of yeah, getting oh, information yeah. trying to get you know some knowledge on this stuff before he started to write the series and I will say this that trip really pays off in this fifth issue nice because nice. there is an action sequence that really pulls from that experience that he had in that museum and really this is a writer in terms of Peter Milligan who really and we said it from the beginning, we said it on various nerd news segments, you know, this is a guy who should be in charge of writing some sort of movie or some sort of thing outside of this because this is a guy who really gets it. This is, you can tell is a guy who's a big fan of the Hammer films and Hammer and and really this thing with Titan and Hammer comics. Uh, he really does a great job with this. And I will say this: there are certain things of not just really with, with DC comics that they kind of pull from, or he pulls from in this, or it could be some stuff from other. Uh, stories we've seen as well, but there's you know, always something, you know, you know, now that uh Nebitah is gone from this, you know, this dead world, if you will, is this dead zone, something's gotta take its place, so something of mm-hmm. course, some some thing, I'm not gonna say what it is, comes and it's like, I need something to take this spot, kinda like we see with the flash and, and the speed force, you know, somebody has gotta take its Wally's place. So mm-hmm. that's being Jay Garrick. You know, so it's nice you have that kind of like existential threat. You have this main Threat with the sect of Anubis, and you know, these, these guys were trying to just stay immortal as long as they can by killing these women and and, and with, through any means necessary, mummification, stuff like that. And I will say this the way this book ends, I don't know what Titan and Hammer have in store as the future goes on, but I can really see this kick off a possible Hammer. Uh, universe within the comics. I can see Peter Milligan hopefully comes back and does builds more on this whole mummy thing. Maybe the next series he does isn't the Mummy says it's the Mummy Awakens or the Mummy whatever. They have something special here. Mm-hmm. So I mean, again, you get a writer like Peter Milligan, you get the artists of, of Sen and, and Freer, and, and the letters of Bolin, and it really does a fascinating job. One thing I want to talk about: I don't we don't talk about the lettering a lot. Bolin does a great job in the lettering because. The, a lot of the dialogue that, that uh, Nebita and Angel have one another is, you know, through you know, brain comms and, and, you know, through thought. And the, he does a really wonderful job of separating the two th- mm-hmm. thought bubbles. Definitely. You know, where where a lot of comics you'll have, like, thought bubbles that are, like, differently shaped and they represent different, you know, who's talking here. And but here it's like he takes the text and gives it different colors. So it's like, okay, Nebita's text is red and Angel's text is blue. So I know who's talking about what. And he really does a great job with his lettering. And, I mean, this is overall a series I love. I think five issues is perfect. You know, we talk about all the time in, in British shows where eight episodes per series, uh, you know, it is, it is really the best way to go. Five in this, it really does hammer it well, really well home. I'm not using that to say a pun. It really does a great job because it's a great... It's, you're not overextending something. You're not drawing a story out. Peter, I think, really did a great job. Uh, Overall, with this whole series, I mean, from issue one to this issue five, it's been a definite pull for me. Uh, This is something that I think even I will reread and go back to. Oh, yeah. Especially if Titan wants to go, you know, and say, hey, let's make a whole universe out of this. Let's do something with this. And you will go back to the beginning and say, okay, I want to see how this whole thing starts. Kind of like with the MCU. You'll go back and watch Iron Man 1 and just. Have that whole week carved out. We'll just watch another MCU movies to see how we got to Infinity War. If they end up doing something big with this, which I think they can with all the other Hammer films, I, sit back and
1: tighten. You got something on your hands here. And you want to talk about an entire series that had? You say what you want about variant covers, man. Oh, some the of the variant covers.
2: Oh, some of those beautiful variant covers. And there's a it's, called, it's labeled cover C, but it's a variant that Freer does. And I'm not going to lie. If you're an Iron Maiden fan, it's gonna, it kind of has a little bit of Iron Maiden <laughs> flavor to it. Yeah. Uh, but it's just one of those covers, man, where you want to talk about, again, with the variants. This is a cover that, you know, I really, again, going back to the Death of Hawkman cover. It's just like there's a variant cover that I want to get for this that Freer does that I want framed in my wall if I can find space because <laughs> it's pretty much covered with a lot of stuff. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But overall, man, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this book. I, this is something I'm gonna go back and reread. And again, if you're somebody who hasn't started the book, or maybe you're in the begin, in the middle, or wherever you are in the series, you're gonna go back and reread this as well because it's just that awesome of story. And again, this is really is a great does a great job of I was telling the story of a woman, kind of like Jessica Jones, who. Reclaims her life in a way, and I like that. You know, as you have this kind of of moment where she's like, "I need to do this," and she takes control, and then you see what she's really capable of, and how really, you know, she's not a victim. She's this woman who really finds her true strength at the end of the series, and really towards the, the towards the end of the fourth issue, where she's like, she comes to terms with what she has to do, and since then, she's really much a badass. And the visuals are stunning. Everything's great. This is a definite book you got to get. And a definite book that you're going to be reading over and over again. And that's going to do it for what we're reading. But come up next, the trailer for Thor Ragnarok is out. And of course, we're going to dissect every little piece of that coming up next in Gigtainment.
1: This is writer Peter Milligan. You're listening to the Down and Nerdy podcast. Well, this week, Nick, we get back to what we kind of usually do in this week in Geek Tamit. Nothing big to review or anything as far as movies or TV shows is concerned. So we figured, why not? Let's talk about the first trailer, the first look that we got at Thor Ragnarok. And before we dive into
2: some concerns we have about the movie, let's dive into some things that we actually, I, at least I actually enjoyed about the movie. The first thing of it being uh, the use of color. This is a very colorful Film. This is not a, a dark toned film, which you thought it would be because it deals with Ragnarok, which is you know the great war, the apocalypse, and stuff like that. But the kind of use a color, I kind of like that, and in, in terms of aesthetics, and um, this looks to be a movie that's possibly aesthetically can possibly be aesthetically pleasing.
1: Yeah, and for the world ending, it's you know kind of bright, nice right. and sunny. I mean, it's a nice spring day out there when when she when Hella comes out and says. Asgard is dead. And I'm like, actually, really? It actually looks like a nice spring day in, in Asgard. Well, I, mean, I don't know what weather you're
2: looking well, at. Well, I mean, in the next scene, you do see, like, the explosion. You see it kind of
1: being encompassed by fire. Just saying. Maybe it's because it's allergy season in Asgard. I don't know. <laughs> maybe. She brings about the pollen in Asgard, and that's why everybody gets wiped out. Kendall Jenner
2: walks out of a uh, group and hands her a Pepsi. And she, <laughs> after one sip, she cancels Ragnarok.
1: Ah, movie over. <laughs> movie, over. movie ever shortest MCU movie ever.
2: No end credit scene either. By the way, but well, sp- speaking of, of Hella, man, Kate Blanchett again. This, and I will say this: Marvel knows how to really hype up a trailer. They know how to get people hyped up for their movies. Hella, for people who don't know in the MCU or even just in Marvel comics, she is the daughter of Loki, and she is the ruler of Marvel's versions version of Hell. And in the MCU, she's it's rumored, and I think seeing how she is in this movie, apparently it looks like she's going to be the MCU's version of Death, which Thanos I said tries that's to a court. pretty safe bet. Yeah. But, but I, can, but the more I watch the trailer, and hopefully uh, it happens with the movie too, where I where she's a strong villain, has been Marvel's problem for a long time, is that the way that they do that, it makes sense. And I think that making her, you know, she is a. A kind, of, uh, a, a, a kind of a a kind of a person of death. So it's kind of like okay, it makes perfect sense to have her and Thanos and Thanos try to quarter and stuff like that. Da, 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 da. Which brings an interesting thing because if they're doing going to run with the whole her being Loki's daughter, it's like Loki's kind of like old boss hitting on his daughter. How do you feel about that, yeah, Dad?
1: <laughs> yeah, <Little> a <laughs> you know? little bit, different. Although I will say, my favorite part of this trailer was her look. Oh, her look is great. I mean, they—if they, you want to get it dead on—they—they they pretty much got Hella's look dead when, on. From the comics. I, when, I mean, when she
2: had, when they have that look, when the, when the music first kicks in, really, and she turns, and it's that she has the head the headdress on, you know, the the horns and stuff like that, the antlers, if you will it looked like wow okay this looks pretty good. Yep,
1: I saw that and I went yep and when I actually found out that she was actually going to be in this movie in the first place, that's this is the villain that I pointed to and said, this is one that they could get right. This is a legit villain that they could get right and it's it's you know, it's sad that it took this long to have that strong villain presence again in the MCU, but this is one where the tide could finally turn, and you start seeing better villains. You know, Once we find out exactly how Thanos is going to be presented in Infinity right. War, I mean, we've still got that to go because that that's the big one. But, you know, she's she could be the start of where the villains finally start to go right with Marvel because she is a legit threat. Well, and here's the thing, too,
2: is, I mean, you can see she's a legit threat because, like, right in the beginning of the trailer, we see her destroy Mjolnir. Like, not only that, she catches it midair. And just destroys it. And Yeah, she doesn't get her
1: destructive supplies at Office Max So like no. Baron Zemo does.
2: No, but I think that again, this is one of those movies where and I'm gonna say this, you're building up this villain who is so strong, who is a ruler of your version of hell. And basically you have to have it to where that final fight between her or that just that, that third act It has to be no holds barred. You cannot have a fucking dance-off like the other Guardians
1: of the Galaxy. No, and you can't have capes wiping people's mouths like in Doctor Strange. It has to be serious, balls-to-the-walls action and just an epic fight at the end to make it matter. And I think that's where we can kind of transition into the things that we're kind of worried about in this movie. And I think top on that list is that you're going to be forcing too many jokes here and trying too hard to make it funny. And I have talking to a, a bunch
2: of friends of ours and friends of mine about this too. And they kind of have the same fears, if you will, about this. To where they're like, yeah, listen, this is a... in the end of the day, this is a movie about the apocalypse. And we were talking about this off air where it's like, where I said, I go... Uh, if you have this thing where apparently it's just going to be like very, very funny, and Marvels basically came out and said it's going to be like a buddy, a buddy cop or buddy movie between Thor and Hulk, it's like, well, at the end of the day, this is called Thor Ragnarok, so you're going to have to have a moment where it's going to be very, very serious, and people are dead, and the apocalypse is here. And if you have it to where you're doing so many jokes, and you're so, the one-liners are flying, and it's so, you know, ha-ha, good old time... The moment you had to have that moment, that real moment of tension and, and, and seriousness, it's going to be such a force. It's going to pull and probably give you a whiplash in terms of how quick they have to turn from one side of the
1: spectrum to the complete opposite. And how often are we making that right. flip back and forth? I mean, I, I think that we can both agree that it's not just going to be like a towards the end thing where all of a sudden they flip that switch and it's go time. I think that there's going to be several times where things are going to get serious in this movie... And they're going to need to pull back from the humor and how long the humor is going to go on. And hey, look, we all like to laugh. We all like humor. But I think we go certain places for that. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't have funny moments in these movies because I think that's part of what makes Marvel good and what's helped them succeed. But at the same time, once you start getting into serious business like Ragnarok, don't you kind of have to shelve that a little bit? And, And here's the thing is people are saying,
2: well, you know, for all of, so, you know, DC is so dark and nobody cracks a joke. Well, Marvel's the complete opposite spectrum where it's like, everybody's cracking jokes, yet I can't take the story seriously because it's like, you know, one minute you're buddy-buddy and punch each other in the shoulder and having jokes, and the next minute you're, like, having this serious all-out brawls. and it's like, or just somebody's dying, or whatever happens. And it's just, like, seriousness, and it just feels so weird and, and, and kind of forced in a sense. And I look at this this trailer again. It's only like a minute and a half, two minute trailer, but I got and a, and a big joke is that oh, this is Guardians of the Galaxy three and stuff like that. I understand that this possibly will be the movie that connects the Guardians to the MCU per se in terms of just like the Earth, in terms of Earth in general. But I do, in a sense, kind of like that they were doing it with Thor and kind of like using Thor as kind of like that person, the that that franchise to to tie the cosmic universe together in a sense
1: which is fine
2: but in the end of the day i understand that Guardians of the Galaxy what makes it work is the comedy and the humor but that's Guardians of the Galaxy right that's a that's a that's a you have a 8 foot tree man and a you know
1: raccoon that shoots guns and that's what you have them for just like that's what dc had the suicide squad right. for say what you want about that movie but that was there okay ragtag group of right. people, Misfits. you know, shouldn't be together, they're all losers kind of thing, and they go out and try and save the world. That's there. But you were talking, we were talking about this off the air, like, you have to have somebody that just is that serious person, like Batman is for the Justice League. Right. Movie. You know, you have to have that, okay, all business. And I'm not saying Thor is all business, but when you get to a movie like Ragnarok, and you know the significance of that in the comics. Yeah. You have to make it matter a little bit more, and you might have to change your tone a little bit. And people will follow you. If any people will follow anybody right now, it's Marvel and the MCU. Yeah. If you decided to do something a little bit more on the serious side, I don't think anybody would be upset.
2: And and here's the, the question too, and it's kind of one of my fears is seeing you know so many jokes and so lighthearted in terms of the trailer. Everybody's talking about well, Dark World was a, a serious movie, and the first movie was kind of serious too. This is my fear, and this is something that not just Marvel looks to be doing, but a lot of movies and and franchises that go into that third, fourth movie realm, where you have a a sequel that wasn't well-received as Dark World was not well-received by people. I was one of the people who didn't like it. I liked it. And you liked it, so we had different opinions there. But, it's to where a studio says, oh wow, they didn't like this kind of dark story, really. Let's go to the opposite end of the spectrum, make everything funny and lighthearted, and by doing that you're kind of losing track, and again, this is called Thor Ragnarok, so my fears, and this is getting to that that, that thing we saw at the end with, with the Hulk. Okay, you're going to have apparently some some drawings from Planet Hulk, which is another serious kind of sad arc and story, really, if you get down to think about it. But what are we going to do? Oh, have Thor chant, yes, and be his oafish self. And that's the problem with the, with so the much comedy, too, is I understand you want to give Thor a personality, but at the end of the day, he needs to kind of be that, like, no-nonsense guy, because he is this... You know, God uh, and, and just this, this king and everything else like that. So to have him be kind of like that that person, you know, that kind of like, even even Aquaman in a sense. Aquaman looks to be in Justice League, very serious and stuff like that, and don't fuck with him kind of a thing. That's kind of what Thor needs to be, but you've gotten to the point where he's such an oaf. To where he's just like
1: a, 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 a frat boy kind of thing. You, they're dude broing him more and more in oh, every yeah. movie, and that's not necessarily a good thing. I mean, I would stick to the way they've kind of been using Thor yeah. in the comics, ironically enough. So you, you, you kind of do that well, in the older comics. Or even, anyway. an, or
2: even in the first movie.
1: Yeah, keep him like that. I don't understand why they're doing this, and I don't understand why you got to try and cram Planet Hulk in here. I mean, I'm sorry you can't do a Planet Hulk movie for various legal reasons. Totally understand that, but is this the movie you need to try and violently shove a Planet Hulk movie into? You no, know, No, let's get this straight.
2: Marvel can do a Planet Hulk movie. They just don't want to share the box office revenue with Universal
1: because Universal has the distribution rights. Here's the deal. You know how when you make a beautiful sub sandwich, right? Right. It's just so delicious. You're looking at it and you're going... I could shove more into this, so that you, sh- you <laughs> shove more meat in yep. there, and then when you try and pick up the sandwich, the bottom of your friggin' sub roll rips open because yep. you put too much delicious meat in there, and that's what Marvel's doing. It's... You're putting too much meat in the sandwich. You're gonna rip the bond, Marvel. And here's the thing:
2: going back to Batman vs Superman, what was the pr- many, one of the many problems I, you know, aired and talked about during our review of it was, you if it was just a, if it was just a world's finest movie, then it would have worked a little bit better. And stuff like that. If, but what happened was Zack Snyder was like, no, oh, we gotta put Death of Superman in there, and that's really like you did too much. But this is like, okay, we have Ragnarok, we have this major event, this 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 apocalypse. Yeah, let's this not Asgardian apocalypse.
1: Yeah, let's not overlook that fact.
2: Yeah, this is a big deal. Yeah, but we gotta put Planet Hulk in there because we haven't had Bruce Banner in the movie. We have to explain where he's gone and why he's where he is. I'm not gonna lie, I love the Planet Hulk arc. But it's one of those things where, like, looking at more, when I see Hulk and his gladiator armor in the comic, and I see it in the animated movie, I'm like, okay, that's pretty cool. When you see it in live-action form, it looks like a big, giant kid playing dress-up. He, like, he looks like Sprout grew up and played dress-up.
1: Yeah, it's just, it's not the best, man, and... Again, I just don't think it's necessary. Like, couldn't you, in the first five minutes of Infinity War or towards the beginning, explain where he's been? Right. And then, you know, he shows up for whatever reason. You explain it it, with a flashback or whatever, and you move on with your life. And then maybe at some point you work your magic and can do a a legit Planet Hulk movie down the line where you don't have to share the rights with Universal. Maybe you figure out a way to do it. It just doesn't need to be done now. I feel like you're 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 cheapening both storylines by trying to shove it into one movie. Tone aside, this is when we were again, I, I
2: don't want it to be bad. I'm not don't get don't get James and I's tone here. We want it to be good. It's just that we are kind of Cautious about this.
1: I've enjoyed the first two Thor movies, so I enjoyed I'm, the first I'm one. I'm fully the first expecting one, yeah. to. I've been looking forward to this movie for. This is one of the movies I was looking forward to the most in the MCU, actually.
2: To be honest, it was kind of the same thing. It was really the same thing with me, uh, and the fact of, of I'm more excited for this than Guardians. I'm the only thing I've been really this excited for a Marvel movie, and I know people probably think, "How can you get excited? You've been talking negative about it." Well, it's more concerns as saying, you know, this is this looks like terrible. It's just concerns because we haven't seen the movie yet, of
1: course. And it doesn't November. look terrible. No, There's
2: just... just certain things that kind of catch our eyes and make the alerts go off. Yeah,
1: especially with, let's face it, what's been happening recently in the yeah. recent movies that they've put out.
2: But I think I've been excited about or at least optimistic, really, going to see a Marvel movie since the first Guardians of the Galaxy. And really for the longest time, I don't know if you've been the same way, but when I go see a Marvel movie now, I don't go into saying, oh my god, I'm seeing a Marvel movie. I'm going into it thinking, I have a job where I have to go see Marvel movies, so this is why I'm seeing this Marvel movie. Yeah,
1: and not that we wouldn't go see them if we didn't have to review it on the right. show, we still would obviously. Just like you're still going to go see it, even even if you saw this trailer and said this movie's going to be trash, you're going to go see it. Just like Michael Bay said, you're still going to go right. see the movie. So what difference does it make? But at the same time, you're right. That level of excitement for me that I used to have in Phase 1, and in most of Phase 2 just isn't there anymore. And
2: I'll say this, too,
1: is I can see that this being the
2: TIE movie, and we had TIE's Guardians of the Galaxy with the rest of the MCU together because you have Jeff Goldblum's character in there who is apparently, I believe he's the uncle of the Collector, which is Benicio Del Toro's Mm -hmm. character. So you kind of have that kind of connection, that, that thread there. Of course, Loki is back, played by Tom Hiddleston, so what is he you know, up to, and what's his whole take on this whole thing? Who knows? But overall, before we close out on this, my, just my thing is, I look at this movie, and my, here are my big hopes for it. My big hopes are that they don't get too lost in the comedy, they don't get too lost in the Planet Hulk arc. And that they really focus on Ragnarok. They focus on that vision that Thor had in Age of Ultron. And that they make it this kind of the center part. I actually want to see Heimdall have more of a bigger role in this too. Which it looks like he might have more of a bigger role in this. I want to see how Valkyrie plays into this whole thing here. Because apparently, if you look at the trailer, we might see the fall of Valkyrie in this. Uh, and, and just, you know, again, this goes back to when you have a villain like Hela... You have to make it to where that final encounter has to be balls to the wall in terms of just action and no holds barred, and it cannot you cannot cheapen it. And that's my biggest fear too is that you know in the, in the trailers we see these oh Ultron oh my god he looks so great well he's not really the greatest villain in the way they perceive trailer exactly. in the movie oh my god uh you know you have uh, uh this other villain well they're not well yeah and whatever looks can be deceiving looks can be deceiving so again we we'll have to we're gonna wait when the movie comes out in November. And, give our, and you know, and look at what we do here and just how we perceive the movie because, again, I don't want to be bad. It's just that there are certain bells and whistles that go off in my head and alarms that are like, oh my god, this is being too funny. Tone it down
1: a little bit. Tone it down. This is a movie about the apocalypse. Tone it fucking down. <laughs> if you keep the focus on what it should be focused on, this is going to be a great movie and a great way to get us towards Infinity War. If you don't, you're still going to have those same concerns going forward as to whether or not they're actually going to be able to have the vision that they should have going forward. And that's going to do it for our talk about Thor Ragnarok. Come up next,
2: a bunch of nerd news to get to. Stay tuned, more Down Nerdy is coming up next. Hey, this is
0: David Pazooz from Gotham on Fox, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
2: Well, it's the time, everybody, where James and I go around the Internet and we see what's trending in the nerd world, and it's time for what, James. Nerd, Nerd, Nerd news. news, and our one of the big stories that actually came out on Thursday, has to do with Spider-Man. And no, not Spider-Man: Homecoming. We're talking about the animated Spider-Man film for miles morales
1: that's right and we know who's going to be voicing miles morales now it's going to be Shamik moore of course you probably remember him from dope and he's going to be in the the dramas coming on netflix the get down so that's who's going to be voicing miles morales we also got a little bit more information that ray donovan star leave schreiber is going to be voicing the villain in this movie so nick just based on those two things alone what do you think about this
2: i've seen dope dope was a really good movie uh, I think Shamik Moore is a really good talent. I think he's somebody who I see a lot of promise in as well going forward in his career. And to be honest, I think that this they had to get this casting and they had to get it right. And I think, you know, with all the uh, success Dope has had, all the grid, word, and mouth, I think getting him in there is a good thing, especially because this is really the first time Miles Morales is being put on the big screen. Now, of course, he had the Donald Glover animated show, but really, you know, you have to really make this showing on the big screen something big especially because people might not want to see it this way but really in sense it is kind of it is kind of uh competing against spider-man homecoming in a sense because you have your miles morales fans who thought that miles morales should have been the center of spider-man homecoming not peter parker and of course the people who think the opposite way so i think this is a really really good idea
1: yeah, and I think part of it, too, is that, I mean, Marvel fans have been clamoring for a Miles Morales movie of some kind for how long now, and now you finally get it. Now, of course, this isn't an MCU movie, so is it going to make as much money as Spider-Man Homecoming at the box office? I mean, probably not, but, I mean, animated movies do pretty well. I mean, look at how well the Lego movie did, and, I mean, speaking of which, Phil Lord, uh, from the Lego movie, actually co-wrote the movie with uh, Chris Miller from the Han Solo movie, so, I mean... There's definitely a lot of credibility there, and, and I, I think a lot of it... Don't you think that a lot of it, too, is going to depend on who who the villain actually is in this movie?
2: Yeah, I mean, Lee Schreiber, of course, there's just a, a whole universe of people he could be. I mean, he could be Mysterio, he could be Electro, he could be Craven. Who knows? My guess is, and this is, again, I don't know where when they're going to be doing this whole Miles Morales thing. I don't know when going to take place... If it's gonna be an origin story or not, but if they do do an origin story, I can see Norman Osborn being in there, possibly Goblin. I, I'm not sure because there's just again there's a huge. Uh, list of characters and villains that he could be, so I'm not sure. I would like to see Mysterio. I think a Mysterio, a Mysterio film, you know, live action or animated the two Spider-Man movies I want to see. I want to see a Mysterio movie, and I want to see a Scorpion movie, so I think that Mysterio would be a good choice. I don't know. What do you think he could be?
1: Well, I think that you have to keep in mind, too, and, and maybe this shouldn't factor in, but to me, it kind of should. This is an animated movie, so this is your chance to grab a villain that You probably wouldn't normally get to do in live action because it would be too expensive with the cgi and it would just jack the budget up so i don't know maybe this is a good opportunity to do kind of like a mysterio or something like that you know or you know i'm you know of course my my mind says wouldn't it be great if it was carnage but we know they're not gonna have carnage against 16 year old (laughs) miles morales But but you know that's the kind of thing you know in animation it would be easier to do a a movie with carnage because you know it would it would be a little bit easier on the CGI and stuff like that so I'm with you, ma'am. I my mean, my brain is just swimming for exactly how many characters this guy could be. I mean I mean Craven would be kind of cool, but again, don't you kind of waste that on an animation project yeah. when you could easily do that live action? Well, especially
2: remember this is again Miles Morales's first foray into the you know big screen. Movies And, you know, so I think that when you see, like, well, who could he have as a villain? I think you hit on the head, you know, hey, a villain that's going to cost a lot of money in live action in terms of the illusions you have to do and just the setup and possibly the suit and everything. Mysterio would be a a good idea. And, I mean, also, something kind of sticks in the back of my mind, too, is, well, remember, Batman had Mask of the Phantasm, so it could be a smaller villain. We don't know. But I think if you're going to do an origin film again, we don't know. Really, what is it going to be centered around in terms of story? Uh, I think you know Norman Osborn sticks out, and so does Mysterio. I would really love to see Mysterio, and I'm not going to lie; I'm actually more excited for this movie than I am for Spider-Man: Homecoming. Be- mostly because the whole Iron Man thing aside, I'm interested in seeing a universe where Miles Morales is Spider-Man, and you know my hope is that one day this animated film does so well. And that Marvel sees what's going on with Sony, and they want to team up or whatever and say, okay, Holland's going to have his run for a few years as Spider Man, and then who knows? Maybe we can do a, a spin off film or kind of a separate universe. It would have to be a separate universe film because Peter's dead in, this, in Miles' universe. But if we can say, okay, we have two Spider Mans, you know, one in the MCU Peter universe, the other one in the Miles Morales universe. Well, and if, that would be pretty interesting as well.
1: Yeah, if you wanted to do the whole ultimate universe, you could absolutely do that. I mean that would that would make it pretty easy if you wanted to do the two separate universes thing. But I mean I just want to say this to anybody who's ever said oh, I want a Miles Morales movie so bad. Oh, I want Miles Morales to be Spider-Man. I, like you just said, I want to see a, a universe where Miles Morales is Spider-Man. Okay, this is your chance. Oh, yeah. You need to go out and wholeheartedly 100% throw your support into this project because this is the toe dipping in the water on Marvel's part and everybody involved to see if there's any interest in, in having Miles Morales be Spider-Man. So if this is successful, you have a lot more chance of getting a possible live-action version of Miles Morales in the future. So this is your chance to show just how much you really do want that.
2: Now, I will say this. If Miles Morales does not end up getting a live-action adaptation, and here's where I think Marvel's idea and their kind of plan is for Miles Morales. I think what they're going to do is, even I, I think even if the, and I, the animated film is such a huge success my my business side of my mind thinks that Marvel wants to keep these two universes as separate as they can. And by making one live action and making one animated, it doesn't really, you know, I, th- I think it, it doesn't blur the line, but I think it really separates the two universes, of course, in, in, in the best way possible. And so I think that what they want to do is they want these two universes, I think, to stand out on their own. And they want to get, and I think this is Marvel's yeah. way of saying, Okay, the people who want Peter Parker, here's your universe. People who want Miles Morales, here's your your universe. And people will probably get pissed, like, well, why isn't Miles live action? And again, it's kind of like, well, you had to see it through a studio's process. Well, if you make Miles Morales live action, then you know people are going to be like, well, you're going to tie the two universes together. What happens with Peter? What's going on with this whole MCU? And who knows, maybe bringing Miles into the MCU might be a little bit difficult because he's from you know the different. You know, universe,
1: and I wouldn't even do it because what's the point, right? You so know, I you mean, don't, you don't need—he doesn't need that kind of a crowd around him, you know? Right.
2: So I think that I know I said I want to see a live-action Miles Morales movie someday, but uh, again, the other side of me is looking at this from the business perspective, from the studio perspective, and like, okay, if they do, just keep it as an animated universe. That's not meaning that doesn't mean they see Miles Morales any more or less of a character than Peter Parker. Oh,
1: absolutely which, not.
2: It's, I think really what this gets down to is them wanting to have these two universes, these two possible cinematic universes, totally separate from one another.
1: I'll tell you what, I'm greedy, so I think it would be really awesome if we could get a, one Spider Man in the MCU and then give me like a Miles Morales live action TV series. I right. know the budget would be stupid high, but imagine <laughs> that. And if you could have both, I mean, you wouldn't even have to make it a full like 21, 22, 20, 24 episodes. Give me like 10 or 13 or something that, that like that. Do something like they did with Legion. Give me that live-action Miles Morales. I think that would be neat if they could pull that off.
2: Well, Legion was 8, so I mean... I think Miles would Either probably... Either way, be man.
1: Well, I think with a
2: Spider-Man TV show, you're probably going to do about... Like what they do with Netflix, possibly maybe 10 to 12 or around that area. But our next story, James, still talks about movies and still talks about universes, except this one's going universal. And it's dealing with monsters. And, you know, something came out recently in an interview with the producer of the mummy, Chris Morgan, he is talking with Collider about, you know, really who, you know, what's the idea? What's the whole concept behind this universal monster universe? You know, who's running the point on it? Who's the head? You know, who's the, the Kevin Feige, who is the Jeff Johns of this universal monster movie universe? And apparently nobody is.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The crickets are going all around the table because they basically said, look, We don't really have a, and of course, paraphrasing here. They don't really have that Marvel MCU type of architecture where you know everything's going to tie together. And and kind of what it looks like here, from what he's saying, is is that we're going to get a bunch of standalone franchises. And yeah, there's going to be some connective tissue here and there. But what they do have is a hell of a lot of writers on this man i mean you've got alex Kurtz, kurtzman who was you know involved with the mummy chris morgan who did fast and the furious i mean eric Heiser, who's going to be part of the marvel i mean uh, the valiant universe somebody people from dr strange men in black they've got a lot of writers but nobody kind of at the head of the table. how much does that concern you it
2: only concerns me of the fact of okay you want to have these certain kind of tissues together But my thing is, when you're doing a universe like this, and you have all these famous characters... I mean, here's the thing. When you look at the Universal monsters compared... I wouldn't say this, compared to the DC Universe, Valiant Universe, and Marvel Universe... You don't have to do any origin. You don't have to do any introduction. Everybody knows who Dracula is. Everybody knows who Wolfman is. Mummy, Creature from the Black Lagoon. list goes on and on. Invisible Man. You know, it's... Everybody knows who these people are... And so if you're not going to really, as a studio, say we're going to take all of our people and make these this one great cinematic universe, what's the point of, you know, oh, we want to, to connect with threads? Well, what's the point of having those threads if you're not going to do a, a crossover like, you know, in 1943 when they had Frankenstein meets the Wolfman? You know, what's the, what's the, the, the point of all that? You know, it, it just makes zero sense to me.
1: I think that they're so terrified to connect these universes because they're so afraid one or two of these movies isn't going to work and then they're stuck with a crossover that people might not be interested in. I think that I think that they're seeing other things not quite work out that aren't Marvel and they're terrified that, you know, the creature from the Black Lagoon movie might not work and then all of a sudden, oh now you're stuck with this crossover, but at the same time like you said, these these characters are pretty famous, very well-known. Everybody knows who they are. Now that I think about it, is it necessarily a bad thing that they don't want to connect these?
2: I think it is, simply because of the characters that you have. I could totally understand if, like, nobody knew who these characters are. But here's the thing, dude. You have, and I love Valiant to death, but you have Valiant is doing their own cinematic universe and not... I think a good lot of people know who their characters are, but not like your average moviegoer knows who these people are. of course
1: not. No, not yet. So if
2: Valiant has the balls to do a cinematic universe, why not Universal and their monsters?
1: I, I don't know, man. I mean, I just think that they're so... It's Hollywood. They're so afraid of losing their shirt now over all of these things that are losing tens of millions of dollars, like, maybe, here's the thing, because, let's face it, the there's been a lot of up and down about the Mummy movie since the, the first couple trailers come, came out, I think the second trailer way better than the first one, so I'm I'm feeling a little bit more confident, but if the Mummy trailers came out, And just knock people's socks off. And people are like, oh, I can't wait to see the Mummy movie. We might get a different tone. If this Mummy movie makes a lot of money and all of a sudden people are really loving this Mummy movie. I really think that we will see this tone change. But I think that Universal is very, very hesitant to move forward with the connected universe and commit all of this stuff before they know exactly how this first one's going to do, which I I agree with you. I think it's kind of a mistake. I think it would be pretty exciting if they decided to connect them, but I, I can also understand at the same time them being a little cautious, and if they decide not to do that, these characters can obviously stand on their own and obviously carry their own franchises for the most part. So, I'd I'd be okay either way, as long as the stories are good and you're not forcing stuff in there.
2: Is part of this and what I'm saying mostly due to because we're so used to seeing everything be tied together now in a universe? Oh, absolutely. You know, when you have characters that you know are within the same universe, it in today's day and age, it makes zero sense not to tie them all together. I mean, look at what CW did with Supergirl. She's on a totally different Earth but yet, she's, still, she's now part of the Arrowverse, you know? And, and that's the thing, is that, again, you have these characters at your disposal. Dracula, Mummy, Wolfman, Frankenstein. And I understand that movies like I, Frankenstein, didn't do a great job. Well, that's because it wasn't well written. I mean, you look at that writer's room, and there's no way somebody will think, well, this is going to be a terrible
1: universe. No, no argument there. I mean, the writer's, the, the writer's room that they have is the- legit. Let
2: me put it this way, if Batman vs. Superman did not delay the entire DCEU, I think that a bad mummy movie or a Frankenstein movie won't delay or derail the entire Universal Monster movie.
1: True, but at the same time, even though it was critically panned, look how much money it made. Made a lot of money, so even though it didn't, and, and those, like you Wait, said, everybody knows who Dracula is, everybody knows who Frankenstein is, those movies were terrible, they but, were badly written, but they didn't make money like Batman vs. Superman. But here's did. the
2: thing, Batman vs. Superman made a shit ton of money, but what happened? Tons of people got fired. <laughs> so it wasn't that nobody went unscathed. They fired a whole bunch, like, Warner Brothers first changed up, and like, a whole top, not just like... You know, people who light the lights and, and, and get the, you know, suits from the dry cleaners,
1: they got rid of like executives and higher true. ups. So True, but that's not the fear here from Universal. The fear is that they're gonna lose money. At My least own. with Warner Brothers, they knew whether it was a crappy movie or not, Batman versus Superman was gonna make a truckload of money. So <sighs> I think that's the fear from Universal. They don't want to lose their shirt on this franchise. Ah uh, dipping dive into the pool, what the fuck. Oh,
0: hey, hey
2: take, I'm, take I'm that not,
1: But that's the thing. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying this is exactly what they're thinking. They don't want to lose a ton of money. I hope they don't. I'd love to see this. I mean, who wouldn't want to see a connected universe of the Universal Monsters? But this first one better work. Otherwise, they're gonna they're gonna have to worry about a lot more than people getting fired.
2: And speaking of people losing things, James, of course, DC is losing one of its writers at the end of issue 25, and of course, it's Greg Rucka. Who's leaving Wonder Woman after issue 25, and also Liam Sharp, who is the artist we've had on the show. We've had both of them on the show. And he is leaving as well. So a whole new creative team is coming in to DC's Wonder Woman in July with issue twenty six. And James, the person who's in charge of writing this and taking the reins from Greg, we know who this person is.
1: Yep. As a matter of fact, speaking of people we've had on the show, how about Shea Fontana of DC's Superhero Girls? Because that's who's going to be writing this book, and I got to tell you, man, when I saw this, my excitement level just went through the roof. And of course, you've got a female artist as well, Mika Indolfo, who's going to be working on the book, course, from DC Bombshells. But Shea Fontana, according to this, of course, she talked to the Hollywood Reporter about this. She's excited to, you know, go from the teenage Wonder Woman to now step up to the fully grown-up Wonder Woman and tell a completely different story. And, man, this one, I mean, we're kind of going back and forth when we're texting each other. Who could it be? Who could it be? Right. (laughs) And Shea Fontana was not in that conversation, and I feel badly about that, but at the same time, it's like, wow, this is why I don't make these decisions, because this is an awesome decision by DC. I think she's going to do a great job. Well,
2: the reason why she didn't come up in our names of who we thought could be the next writer is because that DC, DC Superhero Girls is such a huge success where I'm like, I don't think they would let her walk from there. I didn't think or, she'd or, have time. Or, yeah, and that's the thing too. Is like, I'm like, I don't, I don't think she would have time. and I don't think DC would like want to split her time too much between the success of DC Superhero Girls and another project, but I think she's going to do a phenomenal job. And what this move does for me, I know it does for you a lot too, it eases our minds as to where the story is going to go because Greg's Wonder Woman story is by far one of the best, maybe the best I've, I've read in a oh, long totally. time. Yeah. And Liam's art is phenomenal too. And so that's the thing too that worried me a little. I'm like, okay, so you get a new writer in there depending on who that might be. Oh, we're going to get a new artist too. Oh, no. You know what I mean? Like it's going to mm. be – I'm not going to lie. It's going to be a little bit different because, again, this is a different Wonder Woman. It's going to have a different look and everything like that because new artists and everything. But I'm excited about this. And I just – I can't wait to see what Shea does with this.
1: Yeah, and for anybody that was wondering – didn't see Greg Rucka's Tumblr post. He's leaving of his own accord. There's no shady doings here. He's basically said that, you know, he can't keep up with this book. The, the, I mean, this is, he's writing two issues a month here. And he's just hard to keep up with that. And some of his creator own commitments that he has as well. So he, it's more like he's walking away and he even said, and of course I'm paraphrasing again, that it was a dream come true again to write Diana again, for a second time, of course he he'd written her previously as well. So it's, it's not like he, this is something he necessarily seems like he wanted to do, but he felt like to do the character justice and to keep this story going as strong as it is, he's walking away. And, and there's a, and that's very admirable on his part. I think.
2: Yeah. I think that with this move by Greg. I think what it symbolizes is it shows professionalism that he has because he's one of those people where he's like, listen, I've got so many other commitments I don't want my work or my effectiveness to, you know, in telling a great story for Wonder Woman and Diana and portraying her in the right way, to fall and, and kind of dip because I have other things on my plate that I have to get done, and I like that. And, and like I said, it's just I didn't think that, you know, when everybody says, "Oh, he's leaving on his own accord," it's like, why would they DC get rid of him? Like Wonder Woman, Like, right. like a lot of people like this Diana run, you know, they like Greg's run.
1: And, right. Liam's and, it's art. Not, and it's not like they've got a lot of controversy surrounding them right. either, you know. I mean, as far as those those that group goes, there, there's no big scandals or anything right. that have popped up. So why? I mean, the only thing that popped up was when Greg stuck up for his story against oh, yeah. Frank Cho's variant covers, and that wasn't even controversial. And that was over in what ten seconds? It was over in like two tweets, and then yeah, so I mean, two... and then yeah. of course
2: you know, and we 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 voiced our support for Greg. We are like, yeah. In terms of the covers that you know f- he wanted to do, it didn't c- go well with the t- story Greg wanted to do. like So it, it made sense. We yeah, were on I Team, mean, Kirk, team America. America. Yeah, at least to us. And so I think looking at this and what they're doing, and also for people wondering about Liam Sharp leaving Wonder Woman, stay calm. He's going to be still working for DC Comics, so I'm excited about that. I'm wondering what he's going to be doing as well, man. It's going to be pretty interesting.
1: Oh man, I'm I'm just I, I want him to work on everything. Right so, <laughs> It's it's again me being greedy where where I really want to be like oh wouldn't it be great for Batgirl? Oh, but he'd be so good on Suicide Squad. Oh, what if you do Superman? It's like okay. Liam you know, needs he needs to sleep at some point. Real quick, one comic. You have one
2: character, one comic you want Liam to, to work on as the artist, who do you want?
1: Oh, man, come on. <laughs> ah. Alright, I'm going to say it because it's the first one that popped into my head. Supergirl. Really? Yep. Him and Steve together? Yeah. Him and Steve Orlando? I think that work out pretty well.
2: I think, uh, I have, I have one that I was kind of afraid you were going to say, you were going to steal my answer. Dr. Fate. Oh.
1: Come on, I know you guys are listening. DC, hello, <laughs> hello. You, oh, it'd be pretty easy to bring back like a six issue limited series, wouldn't it? <laughs> Come
2: on, I'm not saying that because I know it'd make you happy. I'm like knowing his art style, I'm like I'm just like, man, he would really do well in Doctor Fate movie and a Doctor Fate uh, uh, comic. Oh, don't
1: don't say Doctor Fate movie. Don't do that to me. <laughs> Don't do that to me, because I know that's not happening anytime soon. <laughs> you can't just throw something like that out there and not expect my eyebrows to go up. Come no, I... I can't even get him on TV. Damn that, it. That, that, that's true. <laughs> you always had him on TV. The NBC said, "Fuck Constantine." Yeah, thanks NBC. Appreciate that. <laughs> Love you guys, though. Blind spots on. I mean, you got to see the helmet. So I mean, there's <laughs> that's that. True. I mean, I guess I got something
2: right. Can <laughs> <laughs> I say this real quick? Doctor Fate, like a Doctor Fate movie, or even just a Doctor Fate show, is like the Disney World to you being a child. Like DC saying we might be doing a Dr. Fate movie or whatever. And you're like, yay. And then something happens. And it's like, well, we're not doing Dr. Fate. Oh, <laughs> that's it. I quit.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> It's like the bicycle that never came on Christmas. <laughs> I know. Right. It's like the, when you, when, it, when it's wrapped up and it looks like a bicycle, you're unwrapping it. You think it's a bicycle and it's not, it's just a little metal frame of nothing. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's like, like PVC pipe. How was this a lawn chair? It looked like a bike five seconds <laughs> <minutes> ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: oh, I'm so glad my parents never played jokes like that. I mean, when I was a kid, they would just destroy me. I my... know,
1: that, that would be terrible. The, the worst I ever got was, like, the box inside the box inside the box. So yeah,
2: good. but, I mean, there. Was, I mean, real quick, like, there were kids, man, I knew who, you know, Nintendo 64, but it was just a box, and it had rocks inside of the box,
1: like that's shitty if my son ever listens to these when he gets older son i I've, i promise now to never do that to you ever because that's just cruel it's <laughs> wrong
2: hey it's new pop show play oven mitts what's this bullshit dad
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's just not cool man i i can't do it i just can't do it <laughs>
2: Oh, that's going to do it for Nerd News, but come up next, Scott Lobdell from Red Hood and the Outlaws, the writer of that comic, is going to be joining us to talk about Issue 9 and more. Stay tuned.
3: Uh, Hey, this is comic book author and creator Matt Wagner, and you're here with the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
1: You know, one of the issues that Nick and I always tend to drift to from the DC Rebirth realm has always been Red Hood and the Outlaws because since the Rebirth issue, it's just been so damn good. So we thought we had to get the writer on now that issue nine's coming out and is out now and the trade's coming out on April the 26th. It's Scott Lobdell. Scott, how you doing, man?
3: Yay! I'm very uh, very excited. Yeah, the reviews did come out today, and I have to say they're pretty uh, pretty stellar. It's pretty fun to read you know, I suppose the old days when I read them and weep, now I'm like, oh, wow, these are pretty positive.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, it makes sense because, mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about it, when Rebirth started, you were one of the few creators that actually remained on the same book moving forward from the New 52. So how does it kind of feel to be able to transition from the New 52 to Rebirth with, with Red Hood?
3: Uh, I think it's fun because I think on the part of some readers when a new writer comes on or a new direction is chosen, there's always kind of that question of how much of what they've read up until this point happened and, you know, some of their favorite moments or stuff. And so I think the fact that I've gotten to write the book for the last mm, six years, I guess, makes it fun for me, but I also think it makes it fun for the readers who've been following the, the two previous volumes to know that there isn't some kind of like demarcation line in the rebirth stories that, mean that the character that you have been following for the last few years is not necessarily the same character that you're following now. So I think that's fun.
2: And Scott, you know, Issue 9, which is out right now, it it takes place and starts off in a very familiar setting to Jason Todd. So what is about the setting that makes it just that
3: perfect testing ground for the team overall? I think part of it was getting them out of Gotham, but also keeping it a personal story. And so the idea was how can the story be told that it's going to be not necessarily just personal for Jason, but personal to Artemis as well. And, you know, also seeing Bizarro essentially on his own for the first time and kind of, you know, trying to put together the pieces what he thinks he's supposed to do and how he's supposed to do it. So I think it was uh, fortuitous that of McDowell has always been hidden in part of Karak and that it happens that this is where uh, Jason was killed and really isn't super excited about going back. So,
1: Absolutely. I mean, you talk about the team. I love the fact that Artemis is on this team because I, I kind of feel like they have some similarities of loss, her and Jason do, and also dealing with the past that they both have individually. So how would you describe their dynamic?
3: Uh, you know, it's funny because whenever there's a man or a woman on the team, it's there's always this assumption that they're going to, Uh, gravitate towards each other. And then there's also this notion that, you know, with a childlike character like Bizarro, then you have a woman and a man on the team. They kind of become the uh, loco parente. And so that's even another step in that direction of like, well, you know, if they are mom and dad to Bizarro already, is this what we're going to be seeing in the characters? But to me, I just enjoy the fact that these two have an affection for each other But, you know, some of the ribbing that they give each other, it's a little mean-spirited, and I think that I don't necessarily know that they, I think they respect each other. I don't necessarily know that they like each other yet. Like, we haven't really seen too much evidence of that. So, I've had conversations with editorial where they say, well, you know, people are really liking the two of them together. Maybe we should kind of nudge them closer together, but I... At least for the moment, I'm resisting that idea because, well, partially it's because, you know, Romeo and Juliet was a great story because they couldn't get together because they're parents. And even Rogue and Gambit was interesting because you had this, you know, Lothario who, you know, loved women and uh, Rogue in particular. And then you had Rogue who can't touch anybody. So there was something that keeps them apart. Mm-hmm. There's really virtually nothing that would keep Jason and Artemis apart. And in that degree, I, I don't find it that interesting, the notion of putting them together romantically. So I just love the way they are. I love the fact that they uh, can be so mean to each other, but also, you know, have each other's back. So.
2: And speaking of bringing characters together, two of the characters you bring together in the series, you've done, I think, a remarkable job in doing it is that dynamic between Bizarro and Red Hood, because I feel it's something that's special, not just in the DC universe, but in all of comics, just for various reasons, simply because they both help each other unlock certain areas of their minds that we really haven't seen uh, before, really. So going into this whole series, what was the biggest thing you wanted readers to get out of that relationship between Jason Todd, aka Red Hood, and Bizarro?
3: I think, you know, one of the conversation that i always uh, that i'm always having with dc is the fact that i don't think i mean bizarro isn't named dumbo he's named bizarro you know Mm -hmm. he's not dumb he's just bizarre and so you know the more that i write him i'm trying to get into this notion that yes he speaks bizarre and yes he thinks bizarre but you know he's not a you know three-year-old uh he's not some creature with a mentality of a three-year-old, he just maybe has some some hard times uh, expressing himself. Or the fact that he isn't, you know, chronologically very old makes it difficult for him to uh, understand everything, but I I do think he's a quick study. So having said that, I think that, you know, Jason, who has, you know, quote-unquote, been a monster or have done, you know, monstrous things in the past, uh, the idea of, like, actually standing him up next to a quote-unquote monster and seeing how the two of them relate to each other I think was really uh, a core core part of it. Um, you know, I think that here's a guy who, even if you take out the, you know, will I grow up to be Batman question, uh, here's a kid who started out as a copy of the original Robin, and now he's on a team with somebody who is essentially a copy of the original Superman. And so in that way, I think these two characters share a bond that really nobody else in the, uh, in the DC universe share in the same way, you know, like even when we see characters like, I don't know, John Stewart or Guy Gardner is another example, I guess, where, you have these people who replace these characters, but then they go on to lead pretty pretty fulfilling lives as characters. But, you know, with Jason and Bizarro, these, you know, are not characters you necessarily look at and decide you're going to give a second chance to. So <clears throat> I think that's why, uh, why they work so well together.
1: Yeah, that's actually a really good way to put it, actually. We're talking to Scott Labdell, who's the writer of Red Hood and the Outlaws, Issue 9, available right now. Get your hands on the trade for Volume 1 that's going to be coming out on April the 26th. And speaking of the trade, actually, Scott, you saw that in the first arc, after the extremely emotional and amazing rebirth issue that you had, in the first arc, we kind of had Jason uh, with the Black Mask and infiltrating the Black Mask gang. And now we evolved to what we have right now, with the Bow of Ra, who almost, that that item itself almost seems like it's the villain of this latest arc. So, how do you feel about the progression going from where you've gone with the Black Mask to where you're at now with the Bow of Ra and trying to get that evil stopped?
3: Well, I'll, I'll say the thing, like, to me, the, even the title, The Outlaws, to me, in the first incarnation and in the second incarnation and even in uh, Red Hood Arsenal, it's not even necessarily about the title of the team, as much as it's about the attitude of the book, and I miss the old days of comics when you know Superman would fly into Batman's back cave and be like, "You know Batman, there's a murder or mystery on the moon, and we need you to help and Batman's like, "Let me get my fishbowl. and he throws a fishbowl helmet on, and Superman
1: grabs him <laughs> into the arm and they to the moon, you know <laughs> I have that issue yeah. actually. <laughs>
3: And the thing is, is those were the days when a comic book was you can do anything in the world um, in, in those 20 pages. Over the years, we've kind of gotten into this, you know, let's ground the characters, ground the story. You know, uh, Batman would never be in space, you know, and and even if he was in space, he couldn't go with a fishbowl because the lack of gravity would, you know, crush his lawn. It's like I don't want to, I don't care about any of that. I just want to like <laughs> have a fun story. Similarly, like, with the outlaws, like, I like the fact that they, that the very first arc was on the streets of Gotham, and the second arc is going to be, you know, in this completely war-torn nation that is also dealing with this hugely significant uh, ancient uh, evil going on around them. So, so to me, I I think that with each uh, incarnation of the series, and even from arc to arc, I like to uh, be surprised, and I also like the readers to feel like, okay, you know, where is this next arc taking me? In fact, I'll I'll tell you a a secret, and I can share a secret with you, because I know no one listens. Um, (laughs) So, (laughs) you know that team, the crime syndicate? I don't know if you remember them, but the notion that What I want to do in a future story is to have Red Hood, Artemis, and Bizarro wind up on this world and, like, de facto undercover with this group. So the group is going to think them as the, uh, you know, the Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman characters that they're used to. But we know that they're going to be, you know, kind of like this, uh, old, that old TV series, Wise Guy, where, you know, the three of them are undercover. And I'm not necessarily sure at this point how I'm going to get them to that world. But to me, that's part of the fun of the series is that, you know, it can take place in the alter world. It can take place in Krak. It can take place in Gotham City. And, uh, and that's what I, uh, that's what I really want to bring to the book. And one of the things that is most exciting to me is that Dexter, Soy and Veronica, sometimes you give work to an artist, you, you give a suggestion to the artist about something that you want and they'll take the shortest direct route to that. Dexter, uh, I worked with him a little on Red Hood and uh, Arsenal and what I love about Dexter is the fact that he, there's really nothing that I can give him that he doesn't try to do. And we have this kind of running joke where I'm like, you know, he'll, he'll write back and say, well, this is impossible. And I'm like, nah, it'd be impossible for anybody else, but you can do it. <laughs> and so he, you know, it's like, okay, I'll try you. And so he, uh, I'm, I have an issue coming up where as of right now, Bizarro is going to have a knockdown drag out fight with Solomon Grundy.
0: Oh, yeah.
3: And he and Bizarro doesn't know Batman's secret judo throw, so it's going to be harder for, for him. But my goal is to uh, just say on these pages, Bizarro and Solomon fight, and allow uh, and encourage Dexter to just, you know, block out the whole thing himself, and then I'm going and add the dialogue because I, I think, you know, I think anybody that looks at that trade. And also looks at the issues coming out. You can just see that uh, Dexter is really um, embracing the opportunity to work on a regular series and really pushing himself from uh, issue to issue. So, yeah, Veronica is amazing.
2: And speaking about the artists with the with the trade that's coming out soon, and of course with the future issues that will be coming out as well. When it just comes to that visual style and the art of the series, has been it's really been one of the, the best series out there. Uh, What have you enjoyed the most about the work you have seen so far from the various artists who have worked on the book and uh, on the series? And and what do you look for in an artist overall when you begin a series with them?
3: I think in the older days of comics there were more uh, creative teams that stayed together for long periods of time. Mm -hmm. Javier Fernandez is a perfect example of somebody who was really good on uh, working on Doomed together. But You know, was also destined for bigger things, and so he wound up, you know, being uh, uh, appropriated for uh, Nightwing. My running joke with Dexter is, is that he, uh, I'm just helping. I'm I'm just trying to help him get uh, big enough that he can beat me. (laughs) Um, You know, and it's the same joke with uh, Kenneth. You know, like Kenneth and I did a lot of work together, but then we got to a point where they just, you know. Wanted him on uh, other projects, you know, to um, make them look amazing. So, so yeah, I mean, I kind of don't necessarily look for anything in an artist in the sense that you know, like Dennis Mitri. Anybody that follows Dennis Mitri's work online can see like his amazing, uh, you know, rockabilly Batman stuff and his high school Star Wars stuff. And if you've ever seen it, it's kind of breathtaking. And so, I really wanted him to do uh, the first arc of red hood and arsenal because he has such a totally different take. And when we were going through what artists to use for red hood and the outlaws, you know, we were talking about this artist and that artist and we we're going back and forth and it didn't occur to me that Dexter was available or I would have made like, yeah, as soon as I was like, Oh, wait a minute, <laughs> why don't we use Dexter? You know, we just did this arc in. uh, Redhead and uh, Arsenal, generally, I I look to the editors to uh, provide the artists. And then with me, it's just a matter of figuring out over an issue or two what an artist is capable of and what, uh, you know, where he likes to get pushed or not pushed or, you know, Dexter and I have this ongoing thing where Dexter hates doing double page spreads. And I love making Dexter do double-page spreads.
0: <laughs>
3: and then all the reviews come out. And, you know, invariably, every, except for this month, every time there's a review of Dexter's work, they're like, and Dexter Soy is amazing in his use of double-page spreads. It's You know, he's really pushing the medium. And, you know, he just writes me up. He's like, I hate you. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> But, but I think that's a good good idea. I mean, that's a good sign of like a, a writer and artist, uh, you know, coming together and, and uh, doing work that is exciting. So, yeah, I mean, it was great having that, um, you know, the, those two film artists were both exceptional. I thought that the Zorro issue was, you know, uh, okay, I wrote it, but when I was looking at it, when I was looking at the art, I was getting all misty-eyed just because i thought the art was so amazing and then it was always fun having uh kenneth back but um but it's been really a joy to uh to work with dexter so
1: definitely as a matter of fact speaking of your other work you actually worked a little bit on convergence as well and that was happening which saw battles across the multiverse and i couldn't help but wonder if you could pit this current group of outlaws against any other group in the multiverse who would it be
3: Well, I don't want to spoil anything, but I know exactly who I would pit them against, and I can even tell you that it's destined to happen sometime between issue 12 and probably issue 16, and they're going to be going up against a group called Red Hood and the Outlaws, (laughs) which was from a few years ago. DC did this thing called New 52, and that team was composed of red hood arsenal and uh, starfire and so what we're going to be seeing very shortly is a battle between red Hood and the outlaws and red hood and the outlaws and so that should be a lot of fun
1: wow so. <laughs> that gives you something to look forward to
2: very, very much so and you know of course the series as titled is red hood and the outlaws so scott if you could team up with two dc outlaws outside the Outside of the characters in this series, who would be your partners and why?
3: Would they have to be superheroes? No. Okay, well, I guess one of them would be the Creeper, because he's probably the only guy that uh, could relate to me when I start rambling. (laughs) And (laughs) maybe Caitlin Fairchild, because she just seems like such a nice person. (laughs)
1: <laughs> very much so <laughs> and, and I mean those are t- two very very unique choices we will definitely give you that well if you want everything Red Hood here's the deal we'll break it down for you issue now issue 9 of Red Hood and the Outlaws is out right now at your local comic shops also available digitally if you want issue 10 It's going to be coming out on May the 10th. If you want the Volume 1 trade, if you haven't read it yet, first of all, shame on you. Second of all, April 26th is your chance to right that wrong. Get Volume 1 of Red Hood and the Outlaws. Writer extraordinaire Scott Lobdell, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, come on.
2: You're making me blush. You know, James, going back to issue zero, the rebirth issue, the first issue, really, of Red Hood and the Outlaws. After I read that, I looked up at you and I said, dude, we have to get Scott on the show And this is one of the best zero issues, one of the best opening issues of a comic series I've ever read because of the twists that they do and the turns that that Scott takes and the chances Scott takes with this and that reveal at the end was just, wow, it was a huge thing for me. And if you're somebody who has not read an issue of this series, first of all, as James mentioned earlier, shame on you. And what you need to do is you need to go out and get this trade because this has been one of those series where it it's it's, very, it's like an onion. Every character has layers to them. The story adds different things you've never seen these characters do before. And it's really a refreshing take on these characters and just what they do. And I love what they do with Bizarro and Scott, what Scott does with Bizarro. It's phenomenal. All these characters, they make you care about all these characters. And, and Scott's done a phenomenal job. Volume 1 was amazing. The thing that Scott does with Black Mask and that whole thing is phenomenal it's not like your regular hey this is a crime boss thing that towards the end of that first volume you're gonna see oh black mask is you know he's a much 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 more serious villain than people might give him credit for and i mean it's just a great great volume so you're gonna have to go get that when it gets out and as always i mean the issues just keep coming and the things that they do in issue nine, and what's you know Scott T is going forward, James, you have to be excited about those.
1: I'm completely stoked, man. I mean, this, the information that he gave us just now makes me. I mean, I wanted to read it as every issue, almost first time it comes out. Anyway, you know, the second that we get them, it's like I got to read Red Hood and the Outlaws. But now that I know what's coming. I'm really gonna jump to that first because, man, I mean, battling with each other down the line, and then you've got everything else that's that, that's coming in the in the in this issue with the Bow of Raw and the Who Is Artemis arc, and then you want to talk about the trade. Yeah, one of the not just the twists and turns and the rebirth issue, but one of the most emotional raw emotional rebirth issues. I think that there was was Red Hood and the Outlaws that first rebirth issue. So that's why you've got to get the trade. And if you start there. It really gives you an appreciation for these characters singularly and as a group as well. So that's why when April 26th hits, if you don't have the trade already, you go get that, write that wrong, and then by May 10th, you're ready for issue 10.
2: And that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down Nerdy Podcast. And thanks to our buddies over at DC Comics, and thanks, of course, to Scott Lobdell, who's just been kicking so much ass. With this comic book series again, Redhead and the Outlaws, go get the trade when it's out, go get all the issues. Hell, buy the trade and buy all the all the issues individually, because this has just been one of those series we talk about it all the time how DC Rebirth has been amazing. And this is one of the pillars as to why DC Rebirth has been so amazing. And again, great work by Scott Lobdell and everybody involved, especially the artists. I mean the art is just phenomenal as well. But hey, if you want more of us on social media throughout the week when you're not listening to the podcast. Be sure to hit us up on Facebook, facebook.com slash downandnerdy. We're also on Twitter at downandnerdy757. I'm on Twitch. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at MerkWithOneR. Mr. Witham, where can they find you after they're done perusing all this Red Hood goodness and, and our podcast goodness?
1: Uh, you can find my tweets at JamesAceWitham. That's W-I-T-H-A-M. But if you're not going to remember all that, and you know, chances are you might not, just cruise on over to our website, downandnerdypodcast.com. The About Us section has all of our social media stuff right there. Where you can follow us. It also has everything about this show. Actually, this show you're listening to right now. Go to this This Week section. You want to buy those Red Hood comics digitally? You can do that right on the This Week section. We also have more comic book reviews on our website, all at downandnerdypodcast.com.
2: And as always, pay safe comic book reading, always bag and board your comics.